Welcome to another episode of Sound Digressions. Today I'm all about COVID again. <laughs> Finally, the most popular episodes of this podcast have all been about COVID. But, but, big caveat here. It, it was very weird when that happened to be the case because a lot of the listeners seem to be coming out of Virginia. So I don't know if it was just like the NSA <laughs> assessing the, <laughs> the podcast or something. I don't know. Anyway, very curious. Curious times. Curious times ahead. Today, I forgot to say one thing about the story concerning post-COVID condition in Canada about the report. That is that well over a year ago, back in January of 2022, Finland was already concerned that long COVID would become that country's leading chronic disease. So <laughs> Canada's report coming out a year and a half later almost. Anyway, whatever. Here we go. Enjoy. Okay, okay. Get wasted. Okay, okay. Get wasted. Okay, okay. Get wasted. Okay. It's been a while since I did anything COVID related, so I thought I should go back to this topic that I hit on so many times during the history of this podcast, which actually started during the pandemic times. There's been a series of news stories out in the last couple of months that have dealt with COVID in their different ways that, you know, that provided uh, information regarding the origins of SARS-CoV-2. Things have kind of stagnated. I think the last big headline-grabbing um, bit of material to come out was probably back in 2021 when the EcoHealth Alliance and uh, Associates uh, DARPA proposal came out. I feel like that, you know, that they were planning uh, not just the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but various other uh, scientists around the world, including scientists in Singapore and the United States, were planning to conduct research into potential pandemic pathogens. Specifically, they were going to look for the part of the proposal that really stood out was the plan to insert cleavage sites, novel cleavage sites, into this potential pathogens, potential pandemic pathogens, to see if they could become more virulent or infectious. Anyway, there's tons of uh, out there about that. I think journalists at the Intercept probably did like some the bulk of the the work on that, even though it was leaked originally by Drastic, the decentralized radical uh, autonomous search team investigating COVID. I think that's what the acronym stands for. Drastic. Anyway, it's been a while. After Biden uh, got into office, he commissioned uh, a new uh, investigation into the origins of COVID. 
and the assessment came out, and this came out in, uh, I think, 2021, um, the investigation revealed there was an un- unclassified summary that was published. The, the alphabet soup of agencies, it's so huge. I, I, I always forget which is who and what. But anyway, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, they released uh, this two-page unclassified report, two-page summary of of the report. I think the report is still classified, uh, but this two-page summary was unclassified and released to the public. And they gave the assessment of eight different agencies. So four of them, four intelligence agencies, uh, declared that the pandemic likely originated through a natural spillover event. Um, and they based this largely on the fact that there was, you know, looking at uh, the, ev- the evidence that they gave most weight to was the fact that China did not appear to have foreknowledge of the pandemic arriving at their doorstep and that there have been many antecedents. There have been many other natural spillover events that have led to pandemic pathogens, one of them being the original SARS back in 2003. There was only, you know, and, and they gave a low confidence assessment to this, re- to, to, you know, their assessments um, were listed as low confidence for these four agencies. There were three agencies which could not reach a conclusion because their analysts could not agree. You know, they were all over the map on whether it was a lab-associated incident or a natural spillover event. And there, uh, there was, in fact, only one agency which attested moderate confidence in their assessment. This agency favored a lab-associated incident. So we have eight agencies, four low-confidence, natural spillover, three undecided, and one moderate confidence lab-associated incident. In February February of 2023, it came out that one of those three agencies that was previously undecided, the Department of Energy, now listed their assessment as low confidence in favor of a lab-associated incident. And this made a you know big splashing news in February. All the people who are who have been clamoring for a more thorough investigation feel felt vindicated. You know, anytime any bit of information like this comes out, feels vin- they feel vindicated. And the opposite, uh, the opposite side, the natural spillover advocates feel like they must rush out and debunk this. And a lot of what happened. Um, unsurprisingly, is that they, they, they just, they, they poo-pooed on the Department of Energy. And it's like, why are they, um, assessing any of these things? And I too was curious because I don't know why anyone would ask the United States Department of Energy to investigate the origins of SARS-CoV-2. It seems odd. But it doesn't seem, <laughs> it seems odd simply because I did not know. I had no clue. And I feel like most people um, fell under this ignorance. 
I did not know precisely what the Department of Energy does. The Department of Energy oversees 17, 17 different laboratories in the United States. Very expansive laboratories dedicated to very varied scientific research, including, including biological research. The Department of Energy also directs research in genomics with the Human Genome Project originating from a Department of Energy initiative. It sponsors a lot of physical science research and a lot of the labs that are overseen by the Department of Energy have been around for quite a while, for longer than the DOE, doing specifically physics research. Many of them collaborated, or at least some of them collaborated, in the development of the atomic bomb. So once, you know, the Department of Energy just sounds like, oh, they oversee the electricity grid, which is not the case at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> they actually are a lot more involved in research than the name led many of us to believe. So their assessment actually carries a lot of weight because they have a lot of scientists at their disposal who one would think are more capable of making an educated assessment of the situation than perhaps the agents of other departments. Because of the information, a lot of, because that Department of National Intelligence report was, is classified, we still don't know who the four agencies are who said they had low confidence that it was a natural spillover and we have no access to their, to their data. Uh, after the Department of Energy assessment came out a couple of days later, the FBI declared that they still believe with moderate confidence that it was a lab-associated incident. There were a lot of suspicions. Many people suspected already that it was the FBI who made that moderate confidence assessment. And their announcement on, I think it was like February 28, confirmed that it was them. It was a confirmation that of what it, many people already suspected. And the FBI, I've, I've heard it report, I've heard reports, I've heard reports that the FBI is also like the Department of Energy, someone with a lot of scientific, I mean, an agency with a lot of scientists available to make educated assessments about this situation. So how much credibility the report has? Uh, I mean, basically a low confidence vote uh, in favor of a lab-associated incident simply says that, you know, we suspect that it is, but we can't say with a higher confidence because we don't have enough available data. And the FBI goes a little bit farther with their moderate confidence. They view like the, uh, they 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 view the available evidence as being strong enough, but not definitive, um, to say that it's a lab-associated incident. Basically, everybody comes out saying because the natural spillover agencies are only giving low confidence to their to their assessments too. What basically all eight agencies are saying is that we don't have enough information to make a definitive claim about the origins of SARS-CoV-2. And because we don't know who those four agencies are that say a natural spillover more likely, it is difficult to assess 
whether they are in a good position or not, qualified or not, to make a fair assessment. We don't know who they are. Then in March, about the middle of March, I feel like the 15th, 16th, something like that, The I think it was the Atlantic who first reported it, and then the New York Times followed through with the story on March 16th, and I think The Guardian had something too, and many other newspapers after that copied their reporting, or reported on that reporting. It came out that raccoon dog DNA had been found in some of the stalls at the Wuhan Huanan Seafood Market back in January of 2020. And a lot of people assessed this finding, which was already known. I feel like I don't follow this stuff so closely that I can say with high confidence that this was already known. But many of the accounts that I know that have many of the Twitter accounts and journalists who I know that have been have been following this very closely for a long time, they're they're all just saying it's like we already knew that there were some raccoon dogs at the Wuhan at the Huanan seafood market. But all these reports in mid-March were treating it as a new bombshell information that some raccoon dog DNA had been found at the market. And they were selling this as as adding yet more evidence to the natural spillover proponents' side. The story is a bit complicated, and I don't think I get I've wrapped my head head completely around it. But it relates to a preprint under peer review currently to be published in Nature by the by George Gao who is the former director of the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention. He was there during the origins of SARS-CoV-2. Now, George Gao and his team and other Chinese scientists have come out quite, quite strongly um, suggesting that the Huanan seafood market was one of the original super spreader events, but that it cannot be claimed that it was the original source, the original site of spillover for the pan- for the start of the pandemic. There's a team of scientists, namely Michael Warby and his colleagues, who are very who have done various assessments about the Huanan seafood market to try to prove that it was the original source of SARS-CoV-2. Using the data provided by the Chinese CDC, whose own assessment says that the Huanan seafood market was probably just one of probably like the original super spreader event. So (laughs) a little... (laughs) It's weird position to be in. I, there's a lot of people who, who say terrible things about Warby and his colleagues, whatever. I don't need to do that. Uh, but there is certainly some sort of politicking going on whereby they are very interested in the origin turning out to be a natural spillover event and working very hard 
in conjunction with news outlets like the New York Times, which has done a lot of other iffy stuff too. You know, they, they, they're rushing to, to, to print these stories by this so-called international team of virus experts. And they are, <laughs> they're relying on data from the Chinese and the Chinese are assessing that data and coming to like very different conclusions than they are. But this team is influential enough that they can get like the, the New York Times didn't see any of the evidence that they had, but they can run and talk to the New York Times and get the story published to get ahead of the Chinese story. This happened also about a year ago, too, when uh, I think Michael Warby's initial report saying that, you know, they had uh, definitive the definitive and conclusive evidence that the Huanan seafood market was the origin of the pandemic. And this came out, I think, anyway, this relates to the same report that we're talking about now, a year later. The peer review process has been very slow for this paper. Who knows why? And, well, I'm going to turn to one of the more level-headed characters on Twitter. I can't remember his first name. Maybe it's Jason Bloom. Uh, Jay Bloom. He goes by Jay Bloom Lab on Twitter. And I'll just read a couple of his tweets. Now, the genomic data that is being assessed in this recent New York Times article and The Atlantic and other news stories, it was all collected during January. It is generally agreed that the pandemic started no later than November 2019. So, uh, Bloom writes, we are unlikely, and I quote, we are unlikely to get conclusive answers about origin of an outbreak that started in November 2019 or earlier by, look, by looking at samples collected in January 2020. The raccoon dog sample that is being lauded. And the reason why raccoon dogs are important is because they have been known to carry viruses of this type before they were found to be carrying, just like uh, civet cats, back in 2003 to be carrying the original SARS. So finding an animal, you know, a, a likely host that has been known to transmit this type of virus to humans before, you know, it seems like a big deal. But so the evidence says that raccoon dog DNA on... And that was found on January 12th that happened to be at the market in similar places where they found SARS-CoV-2 through environmental samples. They claim that there's this, this is somehow this positive evidence that the, you know, that these animals, uh, carried it to the market, but it, it doesn't actually tell us very much except that, you know, raccoon dogs were present in a place where SARS-CoV-2 was also present. There were already many people who had fallen ill by that point, by, you know, January. We still don't have any animals that tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 ahead of humans who tested positive at the time. So really this new, so-called new evidence doesn't, you know, it's good to know, but it doesn't really provide us with any more definitive direction to look at things. The WHO's Scientific Advisory Group for Origins of Novel Pathogens 
Sacco came to a very similar conclusion as Bloom that this data is good to have, but that it doesn't really provide answers, any definitive answers one way or another. We're still investigating, we're still looking for the origins. One other thing that came out in mid-March, I didn't read it and I didn't finish reading it until yesterday. It took me a while to get to it, but I had saved it because I knew I wanted to read it. Uh, it's a report by, by the Office of the Chief Science Advisor in Canada, some Canadian contact for once, led by the Chief Science Advisor of Canada, Mona Nemer. I read this report called Post-COVID-19 Condition in Canada. What we know, what we don't know, and a framework for action. Now, it's a 53-page report. The news stories that I read, actually most of them were just like the one regurgitated news story from the Canadian press that seems to not have, well, seems to have read the full report and done some, done some work talking to people with what the, what the, what the report calls post-COVID condition post-COVID-19 condition, more popularly known as long COVID. And the quote that they took from it is as follow. In the, it's in the conclusion. So <laughs> I was looking for it, looking for it, looking for it. And it wasn't until like the last few pages where I, where I found it. Uh, and the quote is, PCC, post-COVID-19 condition, has the potential to become a mass disabling event given the highly transmissible SARS-CoV-2 Omicron variant in circulation and the unpredictability of evolving future variants. I think the end quote, the, the end of data gathering for this report was October of last year of 2022. It is long and detailed report, but it's also very, very repetitive. I can understand why maybe somebody didn't go uh, line by line for this thing. It's, it's really a slog to read. It's, it's, <laughs> Ah, and I left with the sense that most of the recommendations, there were 18 recommendations listed in here, would not be implemented in any, in the foreseeable future. Uh, my favorite of the 18 suggestions was number 17, that the that Canada scale up, I'm quoting here, 17, scale up and monitor effective prevention interventions, such as improving ventilation in schools, long-term care homes, work and public places as part of a first line of prevention of SARS-CoV-2 infection and other known and emerging respiratory airborne pathogens. I feel like that's not going to get done at all. The day that this report came out, the government announced $29 million of investment into like, <laughs> I feel like about 9 million is going to go to a website where you can find better information about PCC post-COVID condition, yeah, the other 20 million is going to go to like a task force to assess more things. It's not very much money. I mean, if it was coming to me individually, it would be more than enough forever. But this is for like the whole country, right? So <laughs> the report basically says, besides the 18 recommendations, just says that we really don't know enough about PCC about long COVID and that we need to have to standardize what it is that long COVID is because we're, there's really a plethora of symptoms and uh, various 
presentations of it in many different people. I feel like more attention should have been paid to this report. I mean, the, the, the story focused on that like mass disabling event. Quote, it's a good one. It's eye-catching. It is good to see it in a government report like this. Though, sadly, I feel like it probably won't go beyond it. Not in any substantial way, not in any impactful way. Uh, the report also states so many deficiencies that have plagued other long-term diseases, um, the ineffectiveness of like being able to diagnose them properly, to have a standardized way of diagnosing them, and more research needs to be done. The report just basically calls for a lot more research and to look at international partners as well as, well as partners within Canada to, to be able to conduct um, further clinical trials, for better treatments, and better assessment of what uh, long COVID actually is, because right now we are relying a lot on fuzzy descriptors like brain fog or chronic fatigue. And chronic fatigue syndrome has also suffered for a long time already with this kind of like fuzziness about it where, where medical professionals are not exactly not there's no really coherent way for all of them to to get around and describe it in similar terms. It's not one thing, right? And it may turn out to be the case that long COVID is not just one thing, that there's many different ways of, that it presents. But we need to find, the report suggests that we need to find some ways of being able to properly diagnose it and basically do more research to to understand precisely why there are different iterations of it, different manifestations of it, and how they might be interrelated or not. And who is more susceptible to this and why? Another thing that came through the report, which I feel like was nowhere in any of the stories, is that one of the co comorbidities? No. Uh, <laughs> one of the indicators, uh, or one of like, the the common one of them among the many common attributes that sufferers of long COVID have is that majority of them seem to be is that a great majority of them, as the report states it, have female sex. There's a there's a disproportion there, which is not talked about. I feel like, and it wasn't in any of the news stories about the report. Uh, I feel like early in the pandemic, there was some discussion when we were trying, still like very early, when we started trying to figure out exactly what was going on, what the virus was doing. There were, I remember reading some reports that men were dying, uh, older men in particular, were dying at a higher rate than older women. And then it's curious now, many years later, to be reading this, that often women are more likely to suffer from long COVID. And there's no ready explanation or attributable something as to why that is. Anyway, I haven't followed the numbers quite as closely as I, as I used to. I feel like a lot of things have changed. A lot of things have shifted. Uh, a lot of 
a lot fewer people are paying attention. I'm not the only one who's who's kind of lost a little bit of interest in the day-to-day developments of SARS-CoV-2. I'm still paying attention to some of the stuff that happens, but it, it tends to be the more splashier stuff, like the three stories that I mentioned today. One of the f- funny things that I realized uh, while looking into the Dep- Department of Energy is that there's two TV shows, two very popular TV shows, Stranger Things and Breaking Bad, that talk. Uh, and one of them, it's, I think it's it's a fictitious lab. And Stranger Things is a fictitious lab that is operated by the Department of Energy. So I feel like <laughs> con- consumers of popular culture should have been more aware of uh, Stranger Things being a very popular show that people should have been more aware that the Department of Energy runs medical research labs. Uh, and the other one, yeah, Breaking Bad, I think uh, Walter White. Walter White? Is that his name? Anyway, whatever. Um, he worked at a lab for some time before, you know, I think that's part of his backstory, that he worked there before he became a teacher or whatever, something. Anyway. <laughs> a very somber episode, all about SARS-CoV-2. Uh, just letting you know that I'm still thinking about it. It's probably one of those episodes that you can fall asleep to more easily. Anyway, thank you for listening. Talk to you again later. Bye! Staying inside at night it kinda effing blows I don't see a reason why you have to know know that we should do this I'll do this for those who work in our health industries people with compromised immunities Compromised immunity.